This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey... Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, this is the Russell Moore Show brought to you by the Public Theology Project at Christianity Today. And I am your host having a conversation as we do here from a Christian perspective about a variety of uh, different uh, issues and questions. And before I get to my guest, I want to remind you to send your questions in for once a month, we have the uh, listener questions uh, edition. And I'm, uh, I'm eager to answer whatever questions you may have about anything. And so send that to me at questions at russellmore.com. And I'm really excited about this uh, episode because I'm talking to someone who was of immense uh, influence uh, on my life at a really strategic time when I was a teenager. Some of you know, I've talked about this uh, here before and going through a, a real crisis with Bible Belt Christianity and, and wondering what's real, what's true, what's uh, out there. Uh, and and uh, do I have to uh, give up a mind and a soul in order to be a follower of Jesus? And one of the places that um, that I found hope was in the writings of Philip Yancey. Um, I was, uh, I think, uh, directed toward him. I think he was referenced in some way in CCM Magazine, which is a magazine about the contemporary Christian music uh, uh, industry. And that took me over to Campus Life magazine, uh, where he was writing, and also uh, over at Christianity Today, and then started to read his books and found somebody who uh, was able to make sense and somebody who was able to actually grapple with the issues that I was grappling with. And uh, Philip Yancey, thanks for being on the show today. It's an honor for me. Well, it's an honor for me, Russell. I'm glad we finally get to meet, even though it's virtually. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, I uh, remember uh, describing you one time. I was talking about um, writers that had influence on me, and I had you in the category of uh, Northern Evangelicals <laughs> at the time. <laughs> I, I guess you just, because you were, the places you were writing, it seemed to me to be coming from uh, the outside and from the North, and only later did I find out what that you grew up in a very similar uh, sort of uh, setting to mine. And then in reading your new book, uh, Where the Light Fell, I find out even more than that, that we share a common distant ancestor in William Lowndes Yancey, the fire eater uh, from goodness. Alabama, who was uh, inter introducing Jefferson Davis at his swearing in as president of the Confederacy. That was a uh, that was an odd uh, an odd thing to find as I was reading your book. 
Yes, he was credited with partially starting the Civil War by, you know, by rallying the troops behind him. And I found out also that some of my relatives were were slaveholders. I don't know about Mm. you, Russell, but uh, there we are. We came out of that soil. Yep, yep. That's not anything to be proud of, but we uh, we have the genealogies of the the Bible to show us that uh, it, everybody's got a bad genealogy somewhere, somewhere <laughs> yeah. or the other. Yeah, you know? uh, I was uh, really interested in reading this uh, this book. This is a very personal uh, book and a reflection about uh, your life uh, growing up and and dealing with some of these key questions of life and family and faith and so forth. And as I was reading it, I I couldn't help but think not only did it resonate with lots of uh, struggles that I've had in, in recent years, but also with almost everyone I know in some way or the other right now. Because the, the primary question that I'm getting from people right now, they're not about... Um, how can I know that Jesus was raised from the dead? Or uh, how do I uh, talk to my Buddhist neighbor? It's usually about what do I do when I have a family that's uh, splintering apart or I have a church that's splintering apart and I, I don't know what to do with it. And I'm having that conversation so many times a day and everybody thinks usually that they're the only one in that situation. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, they're, they're not. So I think this is a very timely uh, book. And one of the things I wanted to, to ask you about is you talk about in the book, uh, losing your father at a, at a very young age, um, mm-hmm. uh, earlier than you would have been uh, aware uh, of his presence there. And I'm just wondering, as somebody um, who has who has spent a lot of time in the literary arena. If you think about how many people, I just think about the people that have been influential in my life, uh, Frederick Beekner and Walker Percy and I can, you, and I can think of probably 10 more examples right now, all who lost their fathers early uh, in, in childhood and who um, in many ways wrote out of that experience uh, for the rest of their lives. Do you think that there's something to that, that there's there's something about the experience of of losing a father that prompts someone to, to write and to, to think through in a particular way? Well, I've never thought about that before. I, I remember reading a book a long time ago by Paul Tournier, who was the Swiss psychologist or psychiatrist, I guess, and a deep-thinking Christian, and he wrote a book about orphans, and he named all these writers who were orphans, and they lost not only their father, but also their mother. And I, writers are usually introverts. They're people mm-hmm. who learn to stand on the edge and observe what's going on around them. I was certainly like that. And it may be that that sense of loss, especially a father, the father is the one that pushes you, you know, get on back there, you know. You, you got to stand up. I don't care if you fell down. You got to stand up. You got to keep going, you know, mm-hmm. be adventuresome, be courageous. That's the father's voice. And if you lack that and you already are feeling odd because you are different than the people around you, it may be you may be onto something. Mm-hmm. Well, I noticed uh, you mentioned and you mentioned several times in, in the book uh, a vow 
that had uh, had been very troubling uh, to you uh, in many ways over your life. I couldn't help but think, oddly enough, in in reading a uh, biography, a literary biography of Batman uh, several years ago, <laughs> that was trying to say what's at the core of the Batman mythos, and it said it's the vow. Uh, uh-huh. So after the parents are killed, and the vow to uh, to to take on the the criminals who are a cowardly lot by becoming a, a bat. You had a, a vow in the background of your life that wasn't your own, but you, you talk about how the account of Hannah uh, in First Samuel dedicating Samuel, uh, her child, after asking for him from, from the Lord, was the most troubling passage of Scripture for you. Well, why right. is that the case? The vow came about when my father was planning to be a missionary in Africa. He was 23 years old. He was working in Atlanta for an orphanage at the time, raising support. He had as many as 5,000 people who were on his mailing list who had agreed to pray for him and support him. And they were eager. This was their lifelong dream. And they ran into a pandemic. In those days, the feared pandemic was polio. It was primarily feared because it attacked mostly children. There were exceptions. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was one, of course. And then my father was 23 when he contracted polio. And this vibrant, strong man was suddenly reduced to a completely paralyzed person who couldn't move any part of his body, couldn't even breathe on his own. So he was put in an iron lung for two months in a charity hospital, Grady Hospital, you probably know it, didn't get a lot of good attention. And the people who cared about him and were praying for him and wanted to be, wanted him to be a missionary or wanted to be part of that became convinced that he would be healed. They really felt that that was God's will. Why would God possibly remove somebody with that kind of potential at such an, a young age? So against all medical advice, he had to actually sign his way out. They removed him from that hospital, from that. Uh, iron lung and put him in a in a clinic. Russell, I didn't find out about this till I was 18 years old when I came across a paper, a newspaper clipping. And that was a few days after he left the Grady Charity Hospital. And he was showing some signs of improvement. And it was a very upbeat article about there's a healing in process. He's, this man's going to be healed. He's relying on the faith of others. I looked at the date of the newspaper and it was nine days before he died. Ooh. And I did know what happened afterwards. Of course, my mother, the widow, was crushed. He represented all of her dreams. And I'm sure she felt guilt because they had made this tragic mistake, thinking they knew God's will, which made sense. These were people who loved him, but they were wrong. Mm-hmm. I, I learned very early that people who speak for God aren't always speaking for God. And I learned you need to be very careful what you believe about things like pain and and healing. The way that worked out is my mother, while he was still in in the fresh mounded grave, just a few days after the funeral, took us back there. And I'm one year old. My brother is three years old and gave us to God. Just like Hannah did Samuel. She took Samuel to the temple. My mother just said, Lord, if you don't want these children to take their father's place in Africa, then go ahead and take them now. And both of us had childhood illnesses, rheumatic fever and asthma and different things. And 
at various times, my brother and I both would would be in serious jeopardy health-wise, maybe even convulsing with a high fever. And she told us that each time she would kneel down and pray, Lord, unless you want them to fulfill their father's place in Africa, then uh, go ahead and take them. And when we were young, we kind of felt honored by that. It was, we were special, we were set apart. But in teenage days, we started being teenagers. <laughs> we started going our own route, and she was part of this very narrow fundamentalist type uh, branch of religion, way too conservative for Southern Baptists. This was independent Baptist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, she kind of went off the rails. She, she felt that her whole life was, was being wasted by the way we were, the persons we were becoming. And that vow became almost a curse. It certainly did in my brother's case. He, he decided to go to Wheaton College, which most parents would be thrilled to have their children go to Wheaton College. But to, to her, it was a liberal bastion that uh, Billy Graham was associated with. Billy Graham, who consorted with liberals and Catholics and communists. And so it became a curse. She, she told him if he did that rebellious act, she would pray every day that he would either be in a terrible accident and be paralyzed like his father had been, staring at the ceiling, looking at what a terrible thing he had done, or um, die or lose his mind, that God would break him in some way. And that was the image of God that we had, this, this bully up in the sky Ooh. just waiting to find anybody who might be straying so they could break him. And that's kind of set my course as a writer because I... I did, as I say in the book, I did taste of the, the grace aspect. I, I found out that God is not a bully. God is a God full of grace and mercy and kindness and beauty. And I've been working that through with my books ever since, trying to figure out, okay, if, if Jesus is not the person I was taught in Sunday school, who is Jesus? So I'll write a book of the Jesus I never knew. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't really experience grace growing up, well, what's so special about grace? What's so amazing about grace? All of my books are really my coming to terms with what I was taught because I was saturated in this religious environment. And then recognizing, whoa, sorry, something fell over here. Recognize, I was saturated in this religious environment. And then I recognized that parts of it were true, but parts of it were not true. And fortunately, I've been able to work that out in, in public in my writing. You know, I have noticed, and I was just talking to someone yesterday, I have noticed I'm, I'm working with a lot of uh, college students uh, right now. And when I'm talking to the Christian uh, college students, even the ones who often have a, a, a really good and balanced sort of biblical theology at the cognitive level about God, still often will find it very difficult uh, not to think of God the way that you described him as, as someone who's uh, just on the hair trigger of being angry uh, at you and, uh, and wanting to find some reason to. So even uh, one uh, student was talking about flipping his Bible open. And every time he flipped his Bible open, it was, it was coming to a passage of judgment. Uh, mm -hmm. And of course, I mean, as you and I both know, it's because the, the way the physical Bible is it's going to flip open to Jeremiah or Ezekiel or yeah, somewhere, right. and you're likely to come up as a judgment. Right. But but he, I think he knew better in his in his mind. But there there was something deeper than that. How did you 
encounter a a more gracious view of God after having I mean I think it would have been really easy to have had all of those expectations on you to be replace your dad as a missionary to Africa and if you don't God's coming after you to to say I I want nothing to do with this and just mm-hmm. walk away well I had a role model there and that was my brother he was two years older and he went that route and when I was a teenager, I saw him spiraling. He was trying to get away from, from this shroud that had been handed over us. So he went to Wheaton, and this was the 1960s. He wanted to be free. He should have been a concert pianist, but he decided they can't make me graduate from this school. So his final semester, he dropped out, uh, came back to Atlanta, became a hippie, uh, hung out in Piedmont Park doing LSD as, as hippies were doing in those days and, and really messed up his brain. And the rest of his life, he moved to California and explored certain sexual perversions and all sorts of stuff. So he, he took that route of, I'm going to be completely the opposite of how I was raised. And I saw that m- many of those choices were self-destructive. They were not healthy choices at all. In my case, well, the name of the book is is Where the Light Fell. And that comes from a quote by St. Augustine, who said, I couldn't look at the sun directly, but I could look at the rays where the sun fell. And that's where I was. I mentioned that I was saturated in this environment, and there's no way a gospel tract or a Bible story or a revival meeting could get to me. I was I was immune to those. I had been vaccinated thousands of times mm-hmm. <laughs> against that that kind of fear base. And it, it, God used a, a very different technique with me. <laughs> he exposed me to to where the light fell. For me, those things were the beauties of nature. I was a budding young scientist. I thought I would be a scientist. And um, classical music and romantic love. And those three things softened me and, and got me ready for a rather dramatic conversion experience that I haven't talked about in much detail before. Mm. And, and in that process, I learned the church had misrepresented God to me. Uh, I had perceived God as this fearsome, angry bully is the word I used. And I, I found out whoever was responsible for the delicacies of the beauties of nature, whoever made our ears and made the potential for creating the kind of music that I enjoyed, whoever came up with romantic love could not be that person. I needed a new vision of what God was like. And um, I, I finally got one. And I, I had this traffic accident a few years ago where I was uh, I was lying strapped into a bodyboard as with a broken neck as they were trying to figure out if I would survive or not. I thought, I always thought that when you're raised in that environment and when you really face death, all of those fears will come flooding back. You know, the smell of brimstone and the hellfire and all that because mm-hmm. <laughs> I heard it so much growing up. And it really didn't. I I didn't particularly want to die, but I my primary response was trust. I've learned to trust God. There's a verse in, in uh, is it James, perfect love casts out fear? Is that in James? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think so. Perfect love casts out fear. And one of the things that distresses me, Russell, is that so much of my history in fundamentalism and in, even in evangelicalism is fear-based. 
So we're all, we always have something to fear. What if America elects a Catholic president? What, Y2K, fluoride in the drinking water, mm -hmm. communism, uh, secular humanism, HIV AIDS, you know, all of this stuff. We're always afraid of something. And I don't think that should be our primarily primary stance in the world. We should be the trusting ones. We should be the ones who believe perfect love casts out fear. And, and we trust a sovereign God who somehow will make it all come out right in the end. We believe that. That's foundational. That's core. And so we should go through life, as Paul told Timothy, with with a sense of calmness and power, because we have a power that overcomes those fears. Why do you think that fear has such a uh, a power? I mean, especially after we see the last set of things that we were supposed to be paralyzed with fear about simply being replaced by something else. I mean, when, when I was growing up, uh, I, I laughed when I saw your reference to Gog and Magog uh, because I, in, in my church, uh, there was uh, uh, an awful lot of Gog and Magog is... Uh, the Soviet Union, and uh, and here is is the European con common market, yeah, and right. everything's about to uh, about to all go down. Uh, and there was that that sense of uh, the supermarket scanners were going to be the mark of the beast. Uh, listen to this music, backward masked, and and here are the <laughs> satanic messages in music that now would be sort of the background music in commercials, and and no one no one thinks anything about it. Why, after so many times, do we not say, well, maybe there are, maybe there's, maybe there's something else going on with some of the things that we're being told to be uh, afraid of? Why don't we learn that? I mean, what, what's, the, what's the incentive structure there, do you think? Yeah, well, fear is an effective motivator up to a point, Um uh, those Southern Revival meetings where the pastor just keeps going on and on, playing endless courses of just as I am, trying to appeal to one little sin that you have that might get you to join the crowd in front. Um, I mean, I went through that again and again and again. So it's an effective motivator, but only to a point, because after a while, you, you stop being afraid. Some of those things turn out not to be fearsome after all. And... We all know that fear and guilt and shame have their limits. Mm -hmm. And if you're on the outside and you see this group of people like the church I was involved in, and the pastor is preaching sin and hellfire every week to the same people who have all gone forward and accepted Christ several times, mm -hmm. why would you be motivated to join a group like that? And I think part of it is that... that um, circle the wagons mentality when you're in a when you're in a minority faith we were proud of the fact that we had the truth that nobody else had so those southern baptists even they're liberals now bob jones that's a little closer you know mm -hmm. but you can trust our people why are there so many denominations in the world we want to define ourselves against everybody else and when you do that you've got to to somehow get the people to stay <laughs> And fear is a strong motivator for a while. But again and again, of course, parents see their children after a while say, well, I've seen enough of that. I'm not attracted to that. Mm -hmm. I'd rather to go, I'd rather go somewhere where I can feel free. And I go back to Jesus' statements. He said, I, I, I came with the truth and the truth will set you free. Mm -hmm. He said, I came to give you abundant life, life to the fullest, not 
less life than anybody else, but more life. Um, I, I came to set you free to show love to the rest of the world. And we were in this tight little community, just trying to kind of hang on to get through this life so we could get to the other side. That was our motivation. Mm -hmm. And now I read Jesus and I realize, no, it's about showing love and service in the kingdom of God in, in this world, in this life. And I didn't hear much about that growing up. Mm. You know, uh, I was uh, was also sort of marking down when you, you referenced in the book about um, praying the sinner's prayer because mm. I, I identified with that completely. And I think it's related to this, this concept of God because I would find myself... Uh, praying the sinner's prayer that I had heard a thousand times in those uh, invitation hymns over and over again with the sense of, well, did I really mean it the last time? If you, if you pray this and you mean it, uh, the evangelist would say, then, then uh, you, you will be saved. But the question was always, well, how do I know if I really meant it? And how can I look through all of these motives inside of myself and be able to know uh, that this was genuinely authentic. And it actually became almost a kind of secret code that God was mm. uh, re requesting of me um, that, that turned faith into actually the very, the, the very sort of ritualism that sometimes those very people were warning against, uh, but with trying to find just the right, the, just the right emotional mood and the right uh, wording along with the right feeling of the heart in order to be received by God. And uh, as I, I was noticing as you, as you wrote that, and then also when you started talking about this, uh, starting to understand acting, and uh, you talked about how you learned that you can pray from the pulpit give a tear-jerking testimony at camp, and suddenly you're a spiritual giant. Do the opposite, and you're a renegade. And people can judge you by the outside as long as you keep the inside well hidden. And when I read that, I immediately thought of James Baldwin, who would talk about being a teenage preacher and that he was so familiar with the craft and he knew what to do. If you, you worded things in, in just such a way, people would say amen. And if you did uh, something else, people would. And he started to say it, it became very uh, fake uh, to, to him. He started to see it that way as being not, uh, not genuine. And you talk about uh, in the book, it comes up several times, your, your brother asking, how do we know what's fake and what's true? I think that's something that many people are, are grappling with right now. When they're looking at um, some of the things that they've seen within the church and they're starting to say, is this all fraudulent? But then also when they start to look back and say they have these high expectations of what spirituality ought to be, and they say, how do I know that I'm not just following a script that somebody else has, has written? I mean, how do we get out of that impasse? Mm -hmm. it's, there was a character, I don't know if you know this name, uh, Marjo Gortner. Do you remember that name, Russell? No. He, he was a, a Pentecostal preacher, and then he lost his faith. He was a healer in the, in the Oral Roberts-type tradition in the early days of Oral Roberts. And he would go around and have these big rallies, usually tent crusades, 
And then he lost his faith and he wasn't doing well in other careers. So he decided to go back. He didn't believe a word of it, mm. but he knew he knew the, the style. He knew what to do, what, what the behavior was. And he would get up there and preach and and shout and stalk the stage and and uh, get people to come forward. And he'd pray for their healing and slay them in the spirit. And then he'd go back and collect the offering money and move on to the next town. And they did a movie of him. And he, backstage, he would he would tell the, the, the camera people, the producers, uh, don't believe a word of this, but boy, it was a good night tonight, wasn't it? I had them coming, streaming down the aisles. And it's, it's kind of a faith-shaking sh- <laughs> movie mm-hmm. because uh, you start to wonder. And, and that is the risk. And I, I guess one of the most important lessons I learned is that not everybody who claims to speak for God actually does speak for God. Mm-hmm. And another lesson is, don't blame God for the church. <laughs> I, I see the church as God's greatest act of humility, frankly. Uh, it's, it's amazing what we celebrate on Christmas, that the Lord of the universe who created a trillion galaxies would become so small to join one tiny little planet in one tiny little galaxy or solar system in one tiny little galaxy out of a trillion, that that God would shrink down and join us on this planet to express God's love. That's pretty amazing. But what's even more amazing is that God would turn over the mission to us. (laughs) Because when Jesus left, he said, it's up to you now. So here's, here's the good news. It really is good news. So I want you to take it to Judea and Samaria and the end of the world, of the earth. And I'm leaving now. Bye. And he floated away <laughs> in the ascension. And and to me, that's an amazing act of, of humility. Sometimes I shake my head and say, man, if I were God, I wouldn't have done it that way. <laughs> because it opens up to exactly what we've been talking about. We're fallen human beings. We're corrupt human beings. And some people are going to say, hey, there's a scam. You know, mm-hmm. I can make some money on that one. But But the core truth that we've been given is here's the message the message of of god being love at the at the center of the universe i truly believe that and and god wanting the very best life for us wanting to be fulfilled human beings and i i i believe the reason god went through creation process in in the very first place back at the very beginning was because god is love and if you're loved it's not a it's not a verb it, there. It's a noun. God is love. God can't help loving. But if that's your essence, you have to love something. Hmm. And he created human beings in his own image to express that love. And somehow we miss that. It becomes all tied in with a, an institution and structures and rules and all that. And we, I certainly did miss that the core of the universe, the core of the message of the gospel is, is God's love. I, frankly, I, got, I think the entire Bible could be summarized pretty well in Jesus' story of the prodigal son. Because it's really about the prodigal God, the prodigal father, prodigal with his love. Standing on the edge of the porch every day, scanning the horizon, looking, can today be the day I get my family back? And I, I believe that's the story of the Bible, God finding a way to get God's family back. Mm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Moore. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Well, you, uh, in, in the book, a, a great deal of it is, is about, um, I would say, your standing at the, at the front porch and scanning the horizon about your own uh, family. And one of the, the striking things, I think, about the book is that um, it doesn't end with this neat, resolution that, that I think many people might be expecting where uh, eventually your mom realizes how hard she was uh, on you and your brother and there's this this sort of uh, tying up of everything and a, a resolution which as we know doesn't often happen in the way that we mm-hmm. experience life uh, in in a neat uh, neat narrative sort of uh, sort of a way I suppose as you're looking um, at this, and you were very honest and, and vulnerable, I think, in talking about uh, your your family. I wonder about, there are many people who, as they read this, mm. they're going to think about great pain in their own families. And with that will often come a great deal of fear. So if, if you think of, for instance, uh, John Mayer's uh, song, In the Blood, uh, where he's he's talking about this fear that maybe he will repeat uh, the the sorts of patterns that 
his mom and dad and others in his family had? And was that just them or is it in the blood? Um, what what would you say to someone who's who's really having that fear and maybe they're at the front end of life uh, and and just, you know, they haven't really, they haven't really experienced life to a great degree to see who they are. And they start asking, am I just going to repeat these same, these same patterns? Yeah. Well, I'll speak first to parents because there's so many parents these days who are watching their kids just walk away from the faith. Mm-hmm. And they may have had intense experiences. They may have been kind of the poster child Sunday school kid. And now they went off to college and they don't want anything to do with it anymore. They'll, they never want to go to church again. And and that is a great wound for the parents, for sure. You you care about these ultimate things. You want your kids to experience what you've experienced. And what I have learned is that there's there's very little control you have over that. <laughs> In fact, the more you try to manipulate it, you will probably get the opposite effect. The best thing we can do is pray. And my prayer for my brother, for example, who's one of those people, is that he be surrounded by healthy Christians mm. because he was surrounded by unhealthy Christians for his growing up years. And he he got his image of what God is like and what life is like from watching them. And he wanted to get away from it. And I understand that. And and my mother has, has wanted to when he stepped away from that control, she kind of freaked out and did some things that she probably now regrets. So I'd start there. Uh, just be careful. Pray, pray good prayers, not, not try to control their lives, but pray that they run into healthy people. I, that certainly was my salvation. Early in my career, I ran into this Dr. Paul Brand, mm-hmm. who was a saintly surgeon in India, and we wrote three books together. And that became a cocoon period for my own faith to take shape, to form, because I could write with great integrity his own life, his own words, while I was trying to figure out what I believed. And these things take time. Some kids need to stay away from church for a while just to cleanse it, you know, to get that out of their system. And then hopefully find a grace-filled church that, that indeed does present good news. And I guess for for the ones going through it, I would say uh, a word of advice, and that is find people that you want to be like when you're their age. Mm. David Brooks, uh, I know you know, Mm -hmm. wrote about uh, the difference between resume virtues and uh, uh, eulogy eulogy virtues. Mm -hmm. That's right. Resume virtues are what we tend to focus on in the United States. What school you went to, how much money do you make? You know, where you rank in the social order. And Brooks said, I've, I've observed that when I go to funerals, nobody talks about those. They talk about this person was kind. This person always had time for you. This person cared for his family, didn't let work take over his life. Those are the, the eulogy virtues. And we kind of sense that. And it, when you run into somebody who really does have their life together, there's this little bell that goes off that says, that's good. I'd like to be like that person. And for the young people, I would just say, choose some people. You, know, you tend to choose people who will show you a good time. Well, okay, part of life is having a good time. But think about the end of your life. How do you want to end up? And, and look for models. And, and very often, they will be people who were 
who were formed by Christ, the, the fruit of the Spirit, these, the kind of virtues that people talk about, that he was a good man, he was a good person, he cared, he loved, she, she cared, she loved. So that's one word of advice. And when I, when I was a young writer in those days, this was back during Watergate. So Bob Woodard and Carl Bernstein were in the news every day. And Bob Woodard still is, I guess. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, man, wouldn't that be great to be an investigative reporter to, to write these articles exposing these politicians and preachers and people like that? And I did a few of those, and I found it very unfulfilling because you, you have to spend so much time among jerks, yeah. <laughs> the people you're writing about. And instead, I looked for people I could learn from. And I, I wrote this book called Soul Survivor, which accumulates those people. There are about 13 of them. Some of them were historical people, and, and others were ones I interviewed as a young reporter. And, and that, was a, that was a soul-shaping book for me because I realized I, I, I need to learn from somebody who's different than me, like Martin Luther King, but I need to overcome some of the wrong impressions I had in childhood. I, I can learn from Gandhi. I can learn from people who aren't directly Jesus followers, but yet who were challenged by, by the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus preached. And just keep those eulogy virtues in mind. What do you want people to say at your funeral? I know it's hard to think about when you're 22 years old, mm-hmm. but sometimes you do. Some people die at that age. And if you're sitting at a funeral, ask yourself, if they're talking about me, what will they say? And what do I want them to say? You mentioned uh, Paul Brand and your work with him. And you know, it's been a quarter century since I've, uh, since I've read this, so I, I haven't gone back to look at it. So it may be entirely out of my imagination. But it seems to me that one of the points that you made uh, coming out of uh, Brand's work with, uh, with leprosy uh, uh, victims is the way that leprosy would work to... Um, to cause the the pain sensors not to work in a way that sounds utopian. What wouldn't it be great not to be able to feel pain, but yeah. that that leads to uh, great uh, destructiveness? Though the pain's the warning signal that that someone needs. Um, and I, I I think about that when I look at uh, in your book, uh, you talked about something I've seen very few people talk about, and I haven't really thought about it in my own life until I read that. And it was about this numbing of the emotions because of how scary emotions can be. And I know exactly what that was like as someone who had on the one hand a very emotional uh, sort of church context that sometimes could veer off into the manipulation or uh, or or fear based sort of um, sort of manipulation, but then but then also one side of the family that came from the William Yancey fire eaters of, of the South, <laughs> and, and another side of the family that were Iowa abolitionist uh, Catholics, um, and were very calm. And it was you, you would have a very. Uh, very extreme emotions, both in terms of showing affection and celebrating, but also in 
dinner tables that could go the wrong way in that extended family compared to another that was very uh, sort of sort of emotionally calm and, and tranquil. And I found myself, I remember just a few years ago, I was talking to this older uh, man and I was talking about some really painful circumstances, dark circumstances. And he said, do you notice that every time you talk about those things, you smile? Mm-hmm. He said, you're, you're kind of protecting yourself from that uh, emotional experience. And you talk about in the book that sense of, uh, of sort of protecting yourself from, from emotions in that way and almost becoming numb. I think there are probably many people who experience that. What's the way out of that or around that in your view? Yeah. Yes, I had this brother who was two years older, and he would respond by taking people on. So first he tried to be the, the perfect Christian, and that didn't work so well, and things were going, so, going south <laughs> at home, and he would be fighting with our mother, and he's a kid, so you usually lose those fights. And she had this perfectionist theology where she thought she had never sinned, so therefore she's never wrong, so she never apologizes, and he's always wrong. And, and he would just fight. And I saw this and I, I learned that people go through different ways of coping with a really unhealthy environment like that. Like some kids harm themselves. They do cutting or, or some of the, uh, uh, anorexia, those kind of diseases. These are ways of coping with a, an environment you can't control. So you find an environment that you can control. Watching my brother, I decided I've got to have a shell around me that nobody can crack, that nobody can get to the real me, whatever that is. I had no idea what that was. But I watched, I watched how emotions were dangerous. You'd say things, you'd get punished for. And what I, what my brother did was probably healthier, but it didn't, it didn't do any good for him. What I did was unhealthy, but it helped me survive that several year period so I could eventually thaw that shell or God could thaw that shell. And it's taken me a long time, but I've learned all of those emotions are good in themselves. They're much like Dr. Brand said of pain. Pain is not your enemy. Pain is your friend. It's telling you there's something wrong that you need to pay attention to. You would never go to a doctor if you never felt pain. And pain is, it's a, it's a very effective language. It forces you to deal with it. So you, you touch the hot stove and you have to remove your finger. You don't even have a choice. It's an instinct built in. It's, it's a healthy thing. It's a good thing. Fear, fear is a healthy thing as long as you're fearing things that are, that are legitimate fears. When I'm climbing the mountains in Colorado, I feel a lot of fear and it makes me a much more cautious climber and sometimes it makes me a, a more effective climber because fear also gives me adrenaline and it gives me more friction on the, my fingertips. There are a lot of ways in which fear help you. It, it's part of uh, when you meet a wild animal, what, what do you do? Well, fear is, is what you should be feeling and it's going to make you good, make you a better per- combat person in that situation. Guilt. Guilt is a, a good thing uh, because, again, it tells us there's something wrong that you really need to pay attention to. The problem is each one of those can get completely out of control. So we've talked about the fear-based religion and people go around and just feel there's something wrong with them all the time and guilt becomes shame. It's not just I did something wrong. I am wrong. I'm a bad person. I'm worthless. God would never forgive me. 
those things get out of control. So uh, maturity to me is finding what that emotion is for and how it can most healthily be expressed. And I'm not a counselor, I'm not a psychologist, but um, there are people who are very helpful guides in, in figuring that out. And when we, when we get it a little askew, it can be a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. So the fear can turn you away from all religion or the guilt can, can f- keep you from ever having a healthy self-image. We need to find out what are they good for and what are they bad for. And they're mm-hmm. bad usually when they're in excess and unbalanced and you don't have those positive feelings that are balancing them off. You, you aren't convinced that God is a God of love. So therefore, you hear the hellfire and brimstone sermons and and, and you have that image of God. Those are the, the tricky parts. Here we have this package of good news, but boy, it doesn't always sound like good news when we proclaim it. Yeah, you, you talk also in the book about um, an experience of uh, people, of African-American people being denied entrance into uh, church uh, where you were. Um, and told uh, by edict from the deacons that they they couldn't they couldn't come in to worship, and the effect that that had on you and sort of thinking through where why is the place where I'm inhabiting right now so full of contradictions? And uh, I thought you, that you really effectively talked about this sense of contradiction of people who were uh, losers in a war who then took that out on. Uh, on, on people with less power than they had, and the way that demagogues would would use that to say at least at least you're not whoever the the other person is who you, you can feel superior to. But you know, as as we're reading that, it would be it would be one thing if we were reading that as something that was in the past, and this is an anecdote about something that happened. And yet we look around right now. And every day I'm dealing with pastors and leaders who will do so little as uh, pray for the family of George Floyd uh, after his murder and immediately face backlash from people who know how to sing Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world uh, as, well, this is critical race theory or you're, you're woke or all of these accusations coming over this issue of race that seems to not not have let up. It's it's just being expressed in a in a different way. Those same impulses. How 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 are we to as people who name the name of Christ? How are we to reckon with the fact that we have so much of this in our own circles? Mm-hmm. We have a lot to attend to, don't we, Russell? And I appreciate your efforts on this very issue. And in my day, it was different in that it was it was more overt and it was actually legal. So growing up in Atlanta, Georgia in the 1960s, it was illegal for a black doctor to treat a white person. It, um, it was every movie theater, every drinking fountain, every department store had separated the races, whites over here, the coloreds, they called it over here. And the sad thing is that you mentioned that the church just followed right in lockstep. So the deacons at my church posted themselves at each entrance and they had these little cards and I print one of the cards in the book 
that said, we know you're not a sincere worshiper, you're a troublemaker, and you're not welcome here. You're not part of the family of God. Well, one of those people, the church softened over time and started letting a few African-Americans in, especially those who were students at Carver Bible College, which was a Christian college on near the, near the uh, historical black campuses here in Atlanta. And he liked the church because of its Bible teaching and he applied for membership. And the deacons all met together. It was a, it was a tense meeting and finally unanimous, unanimously decided he doesn't belong in this church and pounded the gavel and he was rejected. His name was Tony Evans, oh. who became a pastor of Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas with 10,000 people. Wonderful man who has children who are in the faith, Priscilla Shire, mm -hmm. and his son, Anthony, works for, as a scout for The Voice. How silly we look, looking back. And some of the divisions going on now, I know I talk to pastors, and maybe you talk to pastors, who say, some of my best people in the church have left over vaccines and masks. And I'm thinking, mm -hmm. you know, I can understand theological divisions. If you doubt the Trinity or the resurrection, you know, these are important things to get straight. But to leave the church, maybe even leave the faith over whether to wear a mask or not, something's wrong with the church that does that. Yeah. When, when Jesus was leaving, he spent one long night with his disciples, the Last Supper, and John 13 to 17 spells that out in great detail. And he said, this is, this is what's most important. I'm leaving. I'm turning it over to you. And, and here's how people are going to know you're different than anybody else. First, he washed their feet. He said, you're here to serve, not to be served. And uh, I want you to look for ways to serve. And then he said, I want you to love. I, I give you a new commandment. You'll to, Christians will be known by their love. That's the mark of a Christian. And then the last thing he said is, and, and my prayer for you is unity. If you would just have the unity that we had in the Trinity, then again, people would look and say, oh, those Christians say they love each other. They're unified. Service, love, unity. And I look around me at some of the conflicts going on in the church in the United States right now, and I don't see those three prominent characteristics. And Jesus told us that's what make, should make us different than other people in the world. Mm. Well, I want to ask you one last question, and it's a question that you, uh, that you posed uh, in the book uh, several times. And so can you tell us, how do you know what's fake and what's real? <laughs> I've spent my whole career digging that out. And one of the things I love is that if you ask Jesus a question like that, he would throw it right back to you. And he would say, these are the characteristics, go and look for them, and you tell me. And he said, by your fruits, you should know them. And the evangelical movement, of which we are both a part, the evangelical movement has done great, great things. Much of the mission work in the, around the world that I've seen in various countries came out of that impulse that followed World War II. For a while there, it was kind of the the most prominent branch of faith in the United States. And now it's, it's splintering in ways that cause us a lot of grief. And it's up to every one of us to take the 
instructions and the template that Jesus and Paul gave us on this is what the church should look like, this is how we should act, and ask that question for ourselves. What's fake and what's real? And what do we need to do to restore the church that Jesus had in mind when he turned it over to us? We're not doing a very good job right now, and we need wisdom and guidance in discerning that very that very distinction, what's real and what's fake. I know I've been listening to the CT podcasts on the whole Mars Hill episode where uh, church after church, leader after leader starts off with a bang and ends with a whimper. And something is wrong when that happens, and we need to analyze it. We need to humbly, I think that's the, the critical word, humbly take a look at what we've been doing and try to restore the original impulse that Jesus set loose when he said, I want you to carry the message. It's a message of good news, and it's a message that changed the world. Because in the Roman Empire, this little sect became the dominant religion. Why? Because people looked at Christians and said, I, I like what they're doing better than what I'm doing. I want what they've got. They have a better life than I have. And, and they saw the difference between the fake and the real. And we need to recover that. I've seen it in other countries that are new to the gospel who are, who are still floating with that, that first gulp of grace that they understand. But in the United States, we've been around a long time. We feel kind of surly because culture is turning against us. And we need to learn how to live as Christians in a pluralistic culture. I'm not in charge of the United States. You aren't either. Uh, I am in charge of my little branch of the kingdom. I'm, I'm part of a, of a unit here, my little private church here, and it's a small one. But that's my responsibility. And if we all did our job and returned to what Jesus set loose, then the rest of the world would take a look at us and say, I want what they've got. I want to be that kind of person. That is a good word on which to end. The book is called Where the Light Fell uh, by Philip Yancey. And Philip, thank you for taking the time to be with me today. I enjoyed it. And thank you for all you've been doing too, Russell. Well, thank you for listening. Uh, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review there. It helps people to find the show. If you're listening on a smartphone, just tap the cover art and you'll find notes, uh, uh, including where you can get a copy of Where the Light Fell or learn more about our guest, uh, Philip Yancey. And of course, Check out Christianity Today, lifting up the sages and storytellers of the church. You can, uh, by clicking on the cover art, find out a way to become a member and to be involved. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to the Christianity Today Public Theology Project's Russell Moore Show. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Eric Petrick is our chief creative officer. Russell Moore is the executive producer and host. Mike Cosper is our director of podcasts. Production assistance by Cormedia. Beth Gravencourt serves as coordinator. Kevin Duthu, producer. Audio mixing on today's episode by Kevin Duthu. Our theme song is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. Administration for Christianity Today by Christine Kolb and Pam Vodanova. If you like what you heard on today's episode, make sure you subscribe to catch the upcoming episodes. 
Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip.